If you come from a broken family, did your parents' divorce or family dysfunction bring pain and problems into your life? Pain and problems such as emotional problems like loneliness, depression, anxiety, bad habits like alcohol abuse, porn use, and self-harm, or relationship struggles like feeling terrified of love, struggling to trust, and failed relationships. And as a result of all of that, do you feel kind of stuck, unsure how to heal, and afraid that you'll repeat that cycle in your own life? If you can relate to any of that, this episode is for you. In it, we talk about what is trauma and how does it affect you? Why is your parents' divorce or family dysfunction the most impactful type of trauma and how do you heal from it all? And I'm so thrilled to unveil a new and free resource that we've built for you to help you heal from the trauma of your parents' divorce or broken family so you can break the cycle and build a better life. Keep listening. Welcome to the Restored Podcast, helping you heal and grow from the trauma of your parents' divorce, separation, or broken marriage, so you can feel whole again. I'm your host, Joey Fanarelli. This is episode 96. My guest today is Margaret Vasquez. As a trauma therapist, Margaret helped people of all ages heal from trauma for 17 years. She's the author of two books, More Than Words and Fearless, and hosts her own podcast on healing, which we'll link in the show notes. She's been a guest on various podcasts, TV, and radio shows, including EWTN. She's even been on our podcast multiple times. We've partnered with her in different ways. She's been on episode 37, 63, and 83. She's spoken across the country about trauma and healing through her own nonprofit, which we'll also link in the show notes. And I wanted to mention that the connection framework that she kind of briefly touches on in this episode will be explained further in the new resource that we're unveiling to you all. And by the way, if you don't want to wait till the end to hear about the new resource, you can just go to restoredministry.com slash broken to whole. Again, restoredministry.com slash broken to whole, or just click on the link in the show notes. So here's my conversation with Margaret. Margaret, trauma is obviously a big topic, but it needs to be talked about, especially for this audience, this group of people. I'd like to start with kind of a basic question that is, you know, what is trauma? And quickly, what are some of the ways that trauma typically affects someone? Yeah, sure, Joey. So trauma, very, uh, very basic definition would be anything that overwhelms a person's normal ability to cope. And so kind of inherent in that definition is that that trauma is a matter of perspective, right? And so it's it's subjective. So it, it it varies from person to person, right? You and I both might be in a in a house that's on fire, a building that's on fire. You might not be traumatized by it, and I might might be traumatized by it, right? So it's a matter of um, of your perspective. I think you know I, I would probably be traumatized by that, like a, a firefighter wouldn't be most mm-hmm. likely, right? Because you're you're trained for it. You don't have that same sense of powerlessness, the same sense of threat from it, and and that kind of thing. So. Some just some examples of trauma would be, you know, kind of the things that that people where people's minds most readily go, I think, are like combat, you know, or violent crimes or hostage situations or or school shootings. And those would certainly be traumas. But what I've found over the years is actually those places where we have the greatest expectation of safety and connection, and that's violated, breached in some kind of way. Those tend to be the most impacting traumas. So some of you know those things would be like a, abuse from from a caregiver, right? Or certainly divorce. You know, that's that's something that's your passion uh, for healing people from coming from broken homes. Um, even people who've lived in in homes where there's a lot of domestic violence, certainly, but even even arguing between parents, you know, certainly a place where we have the expectation of safety at minimum, ideally, like beautiful connection, right? Really healthy connection, that kind of thing. Even witnessing that between parents gives a child such a sense of safety and stability and, and security and, and all of those things. So yeah, so trauma really runs the gamut, you know, it can be abuse, adoption, 
verbal abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse. Uh, being bullied is a big one. But yeah, I remember definitely. You mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. I worked with somebody who was at the school a school shooting, and mm. more personally impacting for that than that for her was her personal experience of being bullied on the school bus. And if you think about it, it makes sense, right? Because it's like the whole nation was kind of stopped at that school shooting and going, oh my gosh, that was so wrong. And you shouldn't have had to go through that. But that wasn't the case when she was bullied on the school bus, right? There was, there was no like national outrage, right? And public like outcry, (laughs) you know, it was just that personal experience. So Hmm. In the first situation, though, obviously it was very detrimental, and and some people may be traumatized by that. And I do, I do think this person was traumatized by it, but to a greater extent was the yeah. personal bullying, and it was because wow. there was some sense of connection from even in a general sense from the nation, right? Going, yeah. oh my gosh, that's terrible, and from the media, you know, there's all this kind of a being known and being valued and people wanting you to be safe and that kind of thing. But, but all of those things lacking when it was personal experience of being bullied, it not being seen and like, you know, like people being outraged about it and seeking to want to have you protected or any of those things that, that a person would deserve, you know? Totally. So what I hear you saying is what kind of follows the trauma or the event we can say is almost more important than the event itself. Cause it's like, if people come around you, like not to lessen the event, right? If, yeah. if a woman gets raped, it's like, that's very traumatic, impactful. Mm-hmm. But then if people come around that woman and they love her and they show her like, you know, this doesn't dictate your dignity or lessen you in any way. What that man did is so wrong. Just to kind of use that example, the negative effects from it at least can be mitigated in, in a large part, maybe not entirely, Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, for sure. So he's passed away now, but he was my internship supervisor and my supervisor when I first got licensed as a therapist and Mm -hmm. um, wonderful, wonderful man. And we used to talk trauma all the time. It was his passion as well. He would, he came into work one day at, you know, to enter where I was doing my internship and just plops down in a chair across from me, right? And as he would do this, only, only Scotty could do this, right? And he would just sit there and, pose some some big concept for us to discuss, right? And he just plopped down and said, you know, part of what makes a trauma a trauma is how it gets taken care of. And I'm like, mm. huh. I'm thinking that's, yeah, okay, on a gut level, th- that made sense to me. But, you know, but I'm like, you know, say more about that. And he's, he gave this example. So he said, when he was a little boy, he'd grown up in Pittsburgh and in the in the inner city. And he said that, bunch of kids, a bunch of boys were playing a game of pickup football in an empty lot. And, uh, you know, one day, and there was a jagged pipe sticking up out of the ground. He either fell onto it, got tackled onto it, tripped, whatever. Somehow this pipe ended up in his calf, like mangled his calf, like cut it pretty bad. And so he went home and, you know, he was a little guy, right? And his mom's kind of, his mom's kind of freaking out, you know, and the blood everywhere and that kind of thing. And, but his grandfather lived a couple of houses down. And so she walked him down to his house and his grandfather picked him up, sat him next to the sink on the counter and was like, Oh buddy, let's get that taken care of, you know? And so he gets it all wiped off and cleaned off and bandaged up and takes him for ice cream. And so he said that that was actually continued even to that day. And at that point he was probably very late fifties or early sixties. He said that still stands out to me as one of my favorite childhood memories. Mm. It's amazing. Like the power that we have in each other's lives to mitigate the effects of trauma, even flip the situation. Right. Because if you think about those factors of connection, he felt, he felt very chosen, which, you know, directly and intentionally related to known, you know, as a, seen and heard as an individual who's very good, very valued, certainly, you know, his grandfather stops everything, definitely, you know, certainly like attentive to him and taking, and then protected and provided for. So Mm. all taken care of, bandaged up and taken for ice cream, you know? So, so all of those factors of connection, just like there in spades. And so what could have been like a, a pretty bad experience stood out. It's like one of his favorite childhood memories. 
So cool. It's just, yeah, the, the, the ability we have in each other's lives, right? To like really be a game changer. Yeah, no, 100%. And yeah, I love that example because it, like you said, it shows how much we can kind of step into that place of people being traumatized or at least deeply impacted by an event and then help them to overcome the effects of it or even mitigate those altogether. Like you said, I remember you saying something to me too, that one of the hallmarks of trauma is that that attempt to fight or flee is thwarted. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So our natural response, regardless of what the type of trauma is, is to want to fight or flee in a situation. You know, the fight or flight response we hear so much about. You know, when the initial what what happens is we we perceive that there might be some sense of threat, and that's referred to as the high alert. And at that point, we become like super attentive to every little sight and sound. You know, senses are are super keen, just kind of really attentive and alert. And when our perception is that we're we're in threat, we're in danger. So so our perception, right? So we don't even have to actually be in threat or danger. Does that make sense? So so it can really vary, you know, and especially if our perception is skewed based on our age or or the information we have or whatever the case might be. So when we perceive that we're in danger physically, emotionally or spiritually, is what I've seen over the years, then our natural response is to want to fight or flee. And when we're not able to fight or flee, then what happens is we kind of go into this what's called the freeze state and it's kind of like a deer in the headlights moment and at that point endogenous opiates are released into the body that can can equal up to eight milligrams of morphine which i've been that's a lot right yeah i've been told by medical professionals that's like uh that's a lot that's a really strong dose of morphine Mm -hmm. so and at that point you know you see this happen it's amazing that they they represent this in tv or the movies like whenever um you know when some sort of tragic thing is happening because what happens at that point when the person's not able to navigate away from the situation away from the danger in one way or, or another then that that freeze happens you can tell they kind of seem trapped feel trapped or stuck and then what oftentimes we see is um, this kind of thousand mile stare it gets referred to as and or or things are perceived by the the person through who you know through uh who was being traumatized in the situation they start perceiving things almost like it's in super slow motion you know or time standing still or something i think a classic example of this is the beginning of the movie saving private ryan mm-hmm. you ever see that i did yes. yeah yeah so they're coming up on the do you have time for me want me to explain this yeah yeah go for it yeah okay. in case okay. some people haven't seen it so seen it yeah and and I, I can represent this in a less gory than it's a movie's yeah. pretty, pretty gory. I like showing this, I've, but a couple of times I showed it in trainings and people were like, whoa, that's really rough. And I'm like, so I've learned <laughs> not to show that. I grew up with all brothers. So, um, but anyway, so it's these Higgins boats, right? And they're storming the beach at Normandy and all these, this, the, the enemy is up there and they're just hosing the Higgins boats as they're coming in with, with all kind of gunfire and shelling and stuff. And so the guys, is, they're heading towards the beach. I mean, they, I mean, they're sitting ducks, like yeah. almost literally, right, <laughs> right out there on the water. And so you can see they're in high alert. I mean, they're definitely in high alert, and and maybe in to a certain extent because they're not at a spot where they can fight or flee. They're almost at a freeze, you know. Yeah. Right. Because they can't fight or flee. They they're just gunfires, just hosing. And so then. We're seeing this kind of through Tom Hanks's character. Can't remember his name, Sergeant something, I think. But they, the Higgins boats, the the door lets down, and the guys storm the beach. And it's you know you can just imagine like enormously loud and chaotic and all that kind of stuff. And they're showing all of that, but then it hits a point where all of a sudden, seeing it through through Tom Hanks's character, even the way they do like the camera. You know, like the video effect is like that everything seems kind of like really shaky, you know, whatever that effect is. You know what what I mean when they Mm -hmm. do that, when they're shooting and it's like seems really unstable and really kind of like almost out of focus, you know. And Mm. then the sound sounds like now it's no longer, they're no longer 
um, having the audience here, you know, shelling and gunfire, all of a sudden everything kind of goes deafeningly quiet mm. because that would, that's an example of how a person could perceive a situation. If it's, if it's like an enormously traumatic situation where it causes what is referred to as an altered state of consciousness, where mm. it can feel like time slowed down or times, some people say time sped up. It can definitely feel like, you know, everything's kind of un unstable even physically unstable and kind of wobbly yeah it's just um person can feel like they're even like outside of themselves watching the event happen hmm. so it kind of it really runs the gamut but it's all of it's all basically a physiological response to those endogenous opiates that are released in the body how that wow. alters our perception yeah, no, it's unbelievable. I want to stay there for a second. Just the, the science is so fascinating. And I think it's helpful because it gives such a context for those of us who, you know, maybe haven't studied this stuff. And so, yeah, what else is happening in the brain and in the body when a trauma occurs, aside from what you've mentioned? And maybe, you know, maybe we're at the point now of talking yeah. what happens after. Yeah, well, so from that point on, because we're not doing our best problem solving anymore, right? Nobody would like take a hit of morphine and go study for a final exam, <laughs> right? You're not doing your best problem solving <laughs> at this point. So don't do that. Maybe caffeine, not morphine. There you go. <laughs> so, so yeah, so at that point, we kind of go into what's ref what I look at as like an autopilot hmm. kind of state, right? So um, we're kind of just very much on automatic. And, and it, it's sad because at that automatic kind of state, a lot of times people look at what they did when they were on automatic and blame themselves for, I should have done this or I should have done that, you know, mm. which, which isn't really fair because you have to look back at the beginning when they went into that fight or flight state. And for whatever reason, they weren't able to fight or flee. It could be being overpowered by the circumstances or, you know, a perpetrator in the event or, or our own age, you know, can certainly limit our ability to respond in a situation based on our, our size and our strength and stuff and our resources. So when we go into that autopilot state, it's really because in the fight or flight, we tried whatever we thought was going to be the best, you know, the most helpful response. And, and then it didn't work because of the circumstances. And so, so it's, it's really unfair for people to blame themselves at the autopilot state. It's really necessary to take into account that your body probably got a dump of endogenous opiates, opiates that were equal to a certain amount of morphine. And so that's why you did or didn't whatever would have been the optimal, you know, at that point, right? Just because we're, we're not doing our best problem solving. Body sensations run throughout obviously and, and can vary greatly, right? Like if, at the high alert, you know, like I was talking about super focused in terms of our, you know, our hearing and our, and our sight and just taking everything in. But then in, at fight or flight, you know, it could be like heart pounding and, you know, your hands are sweating and that kind of thing. Uh, yeah. And then at the freeze, you know, it could be like muscles tense up or even we kind of, you know, brace for impact, you know, as the case might be. And then at autopilot, we're pretty much on like in an unquestioning kind of mode because of what's going on physiologically. Once the event is, we get to some sense of safety, some kind of homeostasis is restored. Then we're kind of looking to kind of lick our wounds, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, and so, so that state's referred to as self-repair, but I think it, it's more accurate to call it attempted self-repair because, because mm. <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't really do it, you know, a lot of times, right? And a lot of times it, it's because the the logical side of the brain constricts during a traumatic event, usually our self-repair is not the most like helpful, you know, or most optimal. It's not usually like, let me go for a jog and journal. You know, a lot of times it's more like if we're kids, like steal the cookies from the cookie jar or go watch TV or something like that, you know. Or worse. You know, or, falling into or some much worse, yeah. Bad habit or sure, cutting sure, or whatever. Sure. Right. Yeah. No, yeah. I totally follow you there. And yeah, I think um that last portion you mentioned about that, the emotional side of your brain like constricting. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Because I found that so helpful to understand. And again, it kind of goes with everything you've said already. Um, but yeah, talk about that if you would. 
Yeah, sure. So it's actually the logical side of the brain. Constri- yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no worries. And so while that's constricted, like the traumatic event gets taken in through the emotional side of the brain, which basically like splinters the story apart into sights, sounds, smells, emotions, body sensations, and that emotional side of the brain, the right side of the brain, it encodes things or experiences things as though all time is now, which can be helpful, right? That's beautiful when it's the the couple dancing to their wedding song at their 50th anniversary, or it's the Olympic hopeful who's like motivating himself to get up at 4.30 in the morning when it's freezing beans outside and go swim laps. You know, you know what I mean? You don't yeah. even want to get out of bed. But you're when you're in that more emotional spot, it, you can picture yourself standing on the podium and the American flags being lowered, the national anthems being played. And so you're like, okay, I guess I'll roll out of bed and go and go practice, even though I don't want to, mm-hmm. you know, or you're dancing with your spouse 50 years later and you have that glint in your eye, like you're right back there on your wedding day, you know, kind of thing. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so it can be a good thing, but when it comes to trauma, obviously it's not a good thing because it, the event becoming encoded according to that way, then like, leaves it being experienced like all time is now, which which looks like it that traumatic event being experienced like it's still going on, no matter how much time passes between the event, you know. And it could be like ten years or that's it. More. Yeah, yeah, decades later, you know. I mean we I think maybe people more my age than your age, but we're used to like growing up with like, you know, Vietnam vets or something and hmm. hearing a car backfire and feeling like they're being shot at. And, yep. and that kind of thing, you know, but I think people are pretty familiar with that kind of example, you know, we see that kind of stuff represented in, in TV or the movies, you know, as far as flashbacks, either auditory or visual flashbacks, but one of the kind of flashbacks that they can't artistically represent, so we don't become familiar with it through television or the movies is emotional flashbacks. And that, that's that because the emotional center of the brain is on top, uh, which is the limbic system, is on top of the brain stem, right? And we're not, we're not aware, we're not consciously aware of what's going on in the brain stem, thankfully. Can you imagine having to like put on your calendar like, oh, digest food after lunch? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, thankfully, you don't Breathe. have to pay attention to those. Th- yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, I blink now. So, <laughs> so the just like the brain stems not aware of all of those things consciously a lot of times the limbic system isn't either it's actually in our neocortex where we have conscious awareness and so we can encounter like can be after say for example if i got hit by somebody driving a blue truck i have coffee in my car certain song playing on the radio it's a bright sunny day it could be 10 years later and i walk in a coffee shop i smell the smell of coffee and i I don't even consciously make the connection to, oh, that reminds me of that car accident. You know, just the smell of coffee, I can like all of a sudden be like flooded with sense of anxiety and be like, I'm having a panic attack. And it's like, well, might feel like that, but it's actually your, you know, I could be flashing back to to the car accident. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So because all of a sudden I'm experiencing those emotions from that event, like they're still going on. And yet, have no no like conscious recollection of the car accident, and that that's what I'm being reminded of. So when you when you get like somebody's gone through a number of different types of trauma, those triggers like multiply, right? Like exponentially. And so pretty soon, you could be walking through just a a typical day, kind of like you're walking through landmines, you know, because you're waiting for these things to go off and as you encounter them and not even aware of that, that's what's going on. And so you can get up and feel like, Oh, it's, I actually feel pretty good today. And, you know, and you go out and you go into your day and then all of a sudden psh, it just feels like the rug gets pulled out from under you. And all of a sudden you're in a, a, a real like, you know, somber place or a really anxious place or, or whatever the case might be. So that that's an example of emotional flashbacks. Okay. Yeah. That makes so much sense. I've heard movies can even do that for you if there's like similar characteristics yeah. <laughs> or some sort of dynamic that reminds you of the trauma you've endured. You can kind of start feeling as if you mm-hmm. felt in that situation. I think one of the, um, if people aren't tracking with all the signs, that's okay. One of the things I think the main points that you're making is that you essentially can carry that part of you 
into your present day, even though it had happened years prior, like you said, Mm -hmm. and act as if you are that child or that younger version of yourself, which then can wreak havoc on any area of your life, whether that's your physical health, your, you know, mental capabilities, like your ability to problem solve and think your relationships, um, you know, whether that's with friends, your spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, you know, even your career, whatever else, there's all these different areas where it can really negatively affect you kind of playing that out a little bit more. And I I think that's the main point. And so kind of going from there into this whole idea of like family trauma, like coming from a family where there is extreme dysfunction, like you mentioned before, or there is divorce, especially if it came out of the blue, that can certainly be traumatic. You mentioned something in the course, how that sort of trauma can actually be the most impactful type of trauma. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, certainly. Well, you know, like we were talking about before, it's it's the place where by design we're supposed to have a mom and a dad who are in in healthy relationship, you know. And that when we have that kind of foundation, then it gives us a sense of security, security and stability, right? Because it if I have two parents who are caring for each other, then I don't have to take care of them, right? I can be a kid. I don't have to take care of mom. I don't have to take care of dad. Even if one of them is, you know, gets a cold, gets sick or whatever, or or is in a bad mood or whatever, mom's going to take care of dad. Dad's going to take care of mom to, you know, whatever extent they can and and that kind of thing. So I can be a kid, but when 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 that's fractured, then there are a lot of things that, that happen as far as, you know, children can feel more responsible for their parents. They can feel less of a sense of the parents being equipped to take care of, you know, the child himself. And so that that lack of security and stability creates now instead it's like instead of standing on two legs, you're standing on one leg, you know, maybe alternating if you're going back and forth in custody situations between yeah. standing on one leg and standing on the other, but it's still only on one at a time, you know that kind of thing. And so it, it really is the place where we have the the greatest, at least the greatest right to to have an expectation of of safety, of connection, um, of security and stability. And so when that's gone, then then that itself is like profoundly impacting just the the absence of it. But then, you know, like I said, being put in a spot where whether externally it's imposed on you or just in a child's mind, like deciding I need to take care of mom or I need to take care of dad or both. It's a lot of, it's a lot of pressure and it's way above our pay grade. Right. And it's not even the nature of a relationship as a child to a parent. So Mm. it can become unhealthy pretty quickly. Totally. Yeah. I remember the story from one of the researchers on this topic of divorce and how, how impactful it is for young people. And she was saying that, uh, one day, and in this one particular family, the mom just like upped and left. She just left, never to return. And the the son was in high school at the time. And his dad became so debilitated by his mom leaving that he could barely function. Like it was a really bad, messy situation. And so this kid dropped out of school and just essentially assumed the mom's like functional roles, like cooking you know, cleaning, uh-huh. shopping, like all that stuff uh-huh. to take care of his dad. And it's like, we, we would all agree. It's like a kid's not meant to do that, but he felt, um, you know, that if he didn't do it, no one else would and felt yeah. compelled to do it himself as opposed to maybe ask yeah. for help or something like that. So yeah, it's uh totally can see how that would be so damaging. And I think too, um, there's all these different details, right. That we can talk about and talk forever about of, you know, different ways in which the divorce or the extreme dysfunction at home looked. But, you know, if you're, if there's infidelity that adds its own particular challenges and coping with that for a child, if there's, um, you know, abuse of any kind, whether that's physical, emotional, or even sexual abuse, that obviously Mm -hmm. opens up all these other possibilities and struggles. And, you know, like I mentioned too, the people who've listened to the show regularly have heard us say that the researchers have found that the most impactful type of divorce is actually the usually it's a divorce that comes out of the blue. Mm. It's it's where like the, again, you kind of had this expectation that everything's yeah. fine. And then all of a sudden like dad's gone. Like he Things ran off with another woman. Seen. Yeah. 
yeah so then there's like well are my parents lying to me or what was going on yeah. why, why is in anything the world ever as it seems right then becomes the question right totally and and you're kind of you move through life and this is what we've seen so much in this nonprofit and mentoring young people it's like you, you go through life thinking well what what won't fall apart the thing yeah. that i thought was most safe fell apart so i i really have to watch my back it's, it sure. seems like there's a disaster around every corner and yeah. so um so yeah i can totally see how that would be so traumatic and it's sad that in our world we don't treat this as a trauma but it certainly is yeah. listening to you kind of applying this you know framework the the knowledge that we have through science about trauma um certainly makes this a uh, trauma or at least a candidate for trauma depending on the person's situation so any final thoughts on that and then i'd love to get into your story Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think, you know, part of the problem with trauma is it's it's twofold, right? It's like a two-edged sword. So I think what we what we naturally look at is the bad thing that did happen and mm. its results, right? But the other side of that is the good stuff that didn't happen. And I wow. think that's like, that's really there in, in terms of divorce kind of trauma, right? Or Or broken family kind of trauma, right? Because what the good that's supposed to happen is we're supposed to see it modeled for us healthy relationship, right? Mm -hmm. Really loving and healthy and faithful relationship between two people outside of me, but then also how people relate to me. And then also how I'm expected or am led to expect myself to relate to other people and just what goes into those healthy relationships. I mean, I mean, that's, it's all, it's all changed up like big time, you know? Yeah. No, there's, you miss out on so much. I, I love that yeah. point. And uh, it's, it's tragic, but it's true. And uh, there are things you could do to heal, which I know we're going to get to, but um, yeah, one of our recent guests too mentioned how it even, you know, impacts your physical health. Like they, I forget the whole, what, everything she was mentioning about like your DNA, your genomes, like. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Epigenetics. She was saying, yeah, she was saying like literally. I think it was. Uh, forgive me, guys, if I'm remembering this wrong. But I think she said something like, "If you know a young woman doesn't have her father in her life, then um, they've been able to study on like a genetic level that mm -hmm. she's likely to live not as long. Like her life is likely to be shortened, which is just mind blowing. And I might have mixed that up a little uh, yeah. bit, but it's something in that realm that like this trauma you've been through isn't just this like emotional thing yeah. that is like, um, you know, people who like to wear sweaters and drink tea think about it. It's like, no, it actually has very real. Yeah. Oh life. yeah. Yeah. Dr. Vincent Folletti did amazing work. He was the one who did all the ad, you know, the adverse childhood experience study with Kaiser Permanente and went through studying the effects of trauma on people's lives. And by how many adverse childhood experiences you've had, the, how exponentially your life is shortened by those things. Yeah. Mind blowing. Can I throw a real quick, quick story? Cause I think like it, it's short, but it like it'll illustrate just now. This was a single mom. I don't know more about the family dynamic, but enough to say it was, there was a single mom. Right. So either implies like parents weren't ever married or there was a divorce or something, sure. but, but this was, I was doing contract work at a, at a inner city school and there was a, a little fourth grade boy who would regularly throw himself on the floor on his stomach, looked like a toddler, right? And he would pound the ground with his fez, he'd kick his feet, and he would taunt the the teacher and the principal. And he'd say, expel me, expel me. Hmm. And I was just, you know, I mean, that was not my experience in, of school. Like, I didn't know this was possible in any <laughs> universe or parallel universe or I didn't like know that this was <laughs> so I had him in the gym shooting baskets one day and fortunately I was able to ask this without the amount of judgment that I was really carrying towards him at the time for that behavior. I think I was really just able to ask it from a curious place, you know, and I just I just said to him, why do you want them to expel you? And Joey just like I mean just like the split second and he said because my mom's overdosed three times and all three times I was the only one there to call 911. So man, talk about like the pressure that a child takes on when they take on, it's my responsibility to take care of my parent. I mean, the it's yeah. Kind of really mind blowing. Yeah. Yeah. It totally changes the light on like misbehavior too. I mean, Oh, for sure. Like, yeah. Wow. We look at the outside of, you know, people's behavior and we think we know so much and we don't really, 
yeah, we shame people so easily. And then once we understand their stories, it's like, wow, okay, oh, yeah. it makes sense. Oh, yeah. I mean, he, I mean, in my mind, like this kid flips from being a little brat who needs to get taught a lesson to like, oh my gosh, like how amazingly heroic that he's re- willing to be seen as the bad kid, you know, like basically take one for the team in order to be able to be home so he can protect his mom, you know? Wow. I mean, it like really flips it all. I got schooled that day big time, you know? Yeah, beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. And if it's okay, I'd like to get personal. I know that you didn't sure. learn all about this trauma stuff from a book. <laughs> you, I did the lab first, yeah. There you go, yeah, yeah there you go. You've <laughs> yeah. lived it, you've suffered a lot of trauma. Uh, I know we can probably record a whole episode on that, but <laughs> if you would, and we have actually, <laughs> um, <laughs> we'll link to those in the show notes. But yeah, tell us a little bit about that and just how you get this. That's the main point. It's again, it's not something yeah. that you just studied in a book. Yeah. Um, grew up in a lot of pretty intense dysfunction, domestic violence, ran away from home with the stipulation that I'd move back in if we could all go for family counseling. <laughs> so so it was, it was a yeah, it's not your typical teenager, I guess. <laughs> yeah, just so boy, the you know, it was because of that foundation. I cried every day before school until about fifth grade and lived, we grew up uh, several blocks, five or six blocks from the school I went to. Every time an ambulance went by, I would be so rattled. I'd have to go to the bathroom and like cry because I was sure that mom had killed dad or dad had killed mom. That was my conclusion, like just hearing an ambulance, the close by, was like there must be something at home. So, yeah, I mean, it was definitely impacting. Listen to, and my parents didn't divorce, but you know, so it was hearing them at night, you know, yelling, screaming at each other, and saying, "If it weren't for these kids, I'd be out of here." You know that that wasn't <laughs> that wasn't a good solution. <laughs> Maybe some counseling would have been in yeah. order, obviously, you know, and that kind of thing. So. Yeah. So, yeah, so just for our listeners, I mean, it's not to discount the certainly the trauma of divorce, but just if your if your parents didn't divorce, there's still many ways that we can be affected without that um, secure and stable, loving relationship between mom and dad. Totally. And and that played out to a very serious point in your life where you basically lost all hope. Yeah. You, you wanted to die. Yeah, I went through... Um, high school, it was my senior year, ran away. They agreed to go for family counseling briefly and then didn't like that it was bringing out the truth, you know. And so they refused to go to counseling, at least my mom did. And so then I moved out for good and ended up going away to college, uh, you know, when fall rolled around and was doing a lot of, you know, promiscuity and drinking, binge drinking and stuff like that just to self-medicate. And back then, I mean, that was like the late 80s, mid mid to late 80s. Nobody was talking about trauma and and the, you know, biological effects or anything like that. So I ended up in counseling for 17 years. I finally hit the point where I've been a therapist as long as I was a client. So this is, this is the year. Congrats. The year. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you. I've, I've been cool time in both chairs now. So nice. Yeah. So yeah, but it was ended up being because of the intense anxiety that I would experience and then the dregs of depression and just how morbid the, the depression was. It was misdiagnosed bipolar because that was kind of the popular diagnosis back in the mid to late 90s and but it wasn't bipolar and and had never had a manic episode so the diagnosis I just I kept trying to argue it with them but once you get a diagnosis um, a lot of times it's kind of hard to get somebody to look at something different and so um, ended up being hospitalized on two different occasions and on every medication under the sun I mean it was just con- I kind of felt like a lab rat you know they increase the medications what they do when when mood stabilizers don't work, which of course they weren't going to work because I wasn't bipolar. And so then they combine it with antipsychotics and, and antipsychotics. I mean, it was like trying to function with like a wet wool blanket over my body and my personality, you know, and that kind of thing. And all caused weight gain and things like, you know, so if do you go from feeling like the world's out of control emotionally to my body's even out of control, I can't, you know, and finally ended up where I was just 
imminently suicidal for it had been for 18 months and it, it really felt like not committing suicide was avoiding the inevitable you know and and fortunately the therapist i was seeing at the time found out about uh, about an intensive method of trauma therapy and referred me to that place it was ironically i felt completely thrown away when she referred me out i was like okay she's completely given up on me you know mm-hmm. what i mean just like and so i agreed to go through it just because because i felt like I, it was inevitable that i was going to commit suicide and and i felt like you know in good for the sake of my conscience like i wanted to know i had tried everything totally didn't expect it to work it was really just for you know to have that piece of peace of mind i don't know yeah. you know how strange just to, to talk about but check the box yeah exactly and so went through it not expecting it to work because nothing else had worked for for 17 years and um went through it and it was yeah it was drastic drastic difference at least as far as the trauma went you know i've made changes to that model over the last 17 years of much you know more focused on getting more done in less time for for the sake of people's schedule and and wallets but then also looking at things from more of a connection perspective to better equip people to re-engage in their life and their world in a healthy way but yeah but it was a drastic difference for myself I had a lot to learn after that but it the suicidality was gone the intense anxiety was gone the intense depression was gone and so it was, it was, you know, it was amazing. And so fortunately, I feel like the field has made strides, at least in understanding trauma to be the root of many different things, not just PT, you know, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder that, that more people are familiar with, but it can really be the root of so many things, you know, anxiety, depression, anger issues, addictions of of any kind and really anything as human beings we have we have a, an amazing ability to make any you know to become addicted to anything even reading or exercise or prayer right anything mm-hmm. where we're doing it in order to avoid other things and other emotions can you know can if there's a lack of freedom then we can look at it more as an, an addiction but yeah so yeah so uh it had it had a tremendous effect on my life. So when I went through treatment Incredible. and it worked, then I was like, you know, I was I was going through my master's in counseling program at Franciscan University just to kind of buy time because it didn't seem like anybody was able to figure me out and what to do for me. So um, I had a lot of support in the Steubenville area. So I thought, well, you know, I'll do a master's program because I was not anywhere near a healthy enough spot to hold down a job and I didn't want to be on disability. So I thought, well, I'll live on student loans. (laughs) I didn't kind of calculate that out for in the future, but anyway, so (laughs) yeah. So it was just really trying to buy time to, to figure myself out and no intention of becoming a therapist. It just happened. So happened to be the, the master's program that I had the most interest in at the time was the master's in counseling program. That was why I was taking it. That was the only reason I was taking it. I really truly thought in good conscience, I can't become a therapist because I don't believe it works. And then after it did so much for me, I thought, well, now I can't become a therapist because I do believe it works. <laughs> so, so thus 17 years in the other chair, you know. Love it. Yeah. And in that 17 years, you've helped hundreds of people to heal from the trauma that they've endured in their lives. And just briefly, what are a couple of transformations you've seen uh, in people's lives when they've gone through the therapy or at least just like use some of the tools that the therapy provides to, to mm-hmm. heal and to grow and to become a more whole, a better version of themselves? Well, yeah. So without going into the, into the details on too many stories, because I'd keep you here forever, but it basically the change in people's identity and going from hmm. seeing themselves. Well, I'll give you. A, I'll give you a story. I'll give you one. One stories. There was a twelve-year-old boy I was working with um, who had been adopted, and at, at an early age, you know, there was lots of stuff going on in the biological home for which he was removed from the home, put in foster care, and then adopted. But 
At 12 years old, he was refusing to go to school, just completely refusing. He would stay up till two or three in, in the morning watching silly videos on YouTube and then refused to get up in the morning. His adoptive parents were much older. And so they were bringing in a tutor to, to tutor him. And at like three in the, in the afternoon or whatever, whenever he would roll out of bed. And so I was working with him in therapy really quickly realized like this kid's really smart. Like he's really smart, you know? So I, I, I'm thinking, why is he, why is he doing this man? Like this kid could be anything, you know? And so, so I asked him, like, trying to get him motivated, you know. And I, I said, well, what do you want to be when you, when you grow up, you know? And he goes, I want to be an alcoholic. And I was, I was stunned by that, you know. So I just kind of looked at him wide-eyed. <laughs> and he said, my, parent, my adopted parents are older, and I'm going to get their inheritance by the time it's time for me to work. They'll be out of the picture. And I just want to stay home and watch movies and, and watch videos and drink all day. Hmm. And I was stunned. I mean, he was, and he was as, as sincere as you can imagine. You know, he wasn't mm -hmm. saying this to get a rise out of me or anything you could tell. And so I'm, th I'm thinking, well, you have a really good resume so far, you know what I mean? Like you're, you're heading in that direction. So I, I just, I didn't even know what to make of it. And how, what do you do? Like, how do you motivate somebody? Right. And so right. they, you know, they always say the, the, because there can be so many effects of trauma, cognitively, physically, emotionally, relationally, identity-wise, spiritually, like it, they're just myriad, right? Mm -hmm. And so because of that, it's always that you treat the trauma first and then see what's left. So I just, I mean, I had to repeat that in my own mind like a million times through that week because mm -hmm. I'm just thinking, what in the world is going on here? And so finished working with him that week and a couple of months go by, his adoptive mom ended up contacting me for something totally unrelated to him. I can't recall. I think I had to do with treating another one of his adoptive siblings. But in the meantime, she she mentions him and and just kind of offhand says, Oh, he made the honor roll. And and I'm like, What? She's like, Yeah, he made the honor roll. And and I'm like, he wasn't even going to school. Like how how did he make the honor roll? And she said, yeah, a couple of weeks after he finished therapy with you, he just randomly came down one day <laughs> dressed for school and said, he's going to start going to school and, and started going to school and made the honor roll. And so, yeah, I, I doubt he even was aware of why he was, you know, why he was doing what he was doing and not doing what he wasn't doing. And yet you can kind of, you know, I, I, I always think about it metaphorically as like if somebody has a bunch of broken glass in the bottom of their foot and they're limping along right like I, I don't know if that that person might be an olympic athlete they might be like the the fastest person in the world but we're never going to know until we get the glass out of the bottom of their foot like don't focus so much on i wish i was an olympic athlete or beating yourself up because you can't you're not standing up straight you're not walking straight like let's just get the glass out of out of the bottom of your foot and and take it from there you know so wow yeah so it was really really amazing most you know in in very recent times worked with somebody who using the now this was again a teenager um using the tools of how to relate to herself healthily and then from that how to relate to siblings healthily, even when they were not relating healthily to her. And it was, it was really cool. It was, I have to tell you, it made my, made my week. I got an email from the mom and um, the mom said that, that she had seen how the child had related to her sibling in a really healthy way. I was able to to stay in a place of calm, compassion, confidence, and that kind of thing, even though the sibling was, freaking out at her so so fortunately the mom was able to applaud my my client and just really pointed it out to her later and really like you know affirmed her for it and stuff and the kid said yeah you know that stuff that margaret taught me like it works i mean mom it really works like it's not just words oh, <laughs> yeah. and, and then said can you will you will you email margaret and thank her for me and so the, so the mom did that and that just i was like over the moon because 
like good for the kid for doing it, right? For especially since she didn't know whether she could believe me that it would <laughs> that it would really work, right? So, but she tried it and it did, and then good for the mom, right, for catching that and affirming it. So hmm. it's really beautiful because you can see in situations like that. That's how it goes from we're on this vicious cycle of seeing ourselves in a negative way and and suffering the effects of trauma. And then it makes us see ourselves as even less capable. And so then we, you know, maybe try less and, and so then feel worse about ourselves and right. That's the vicious cycle. But once the trauma is treated and the glass is out of the bottom of the person's foot, then they're able to, to start doing more and seeing that they can do more. And so then they try more and then start to feel better about themselves. And so then they try a little more and then it, it just, you know, and so like in the case of that teenager, then actually using the tools of healthy relating and, you know, and mom affirming that and then her feeling a greater sense of effectiveness, right. In relationship, because this person had this, teen had really been struggling with tremendous amount of social anxiety. So I know that's only going to overflow into sense of confidence in being able to relate to other people and having some, you know, some uh, ability and uh, yeah, just confidence that she'll be able to, to navigate relationships in a peaceful ways. Beautiful. Yeah. And I know um, one story of a young woman who went through therapy with you, she was like really in a rough spot on the brink of suicide really just cutting just really came from a dysfunctional broken divorced family and after going through therapy with you it was like a 180 it was like mm -hmm. a complete change and she um no longer even feels tempted to suicide or cutting and um and so it was an incredible heal incredible step in her healing process which is amazing um one final story i remember you sharing it i think you shared this in your book too how um yeah, there were people you've worked with where their bodies were like reacting to the trauma, like they were oh, yeah. almost anemic. Like tell tell one of those stories because I think that just shows so much the transformation that you can experience if you've been suffering from these effects of trauma and then you go through this healing process. You can experience the 180, just total transformation. Oh, yeah, it's really... So I, I love this example. There was a an MD who I was working with, right? So this was a doc and he told me that um, there was something he had gone through eight years prior. Um, it was a it was an accident that had happened with a a, a dog had gotten away from somebody and it had bit him. And yeah. as a result of that, he had constant nerve damage from that situation. It wasn't even one of his his major traumas as far as like emotionally goes. But we reached the end of the week, finished everything that that was the big glaring stuff. And I said, is there anything else? And he brought the situation up again and said, yeah, you know, there's something about that memory. I just, I really feel like I need to, to work on that. So we did this stuff we, you know, we do to process traumas and he's, he, he's looking at me as we're finishing it, you know, just kind of wide eyed and just kind of amazed and as though I know what's going on and, you mm -hmm. know, in, 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 his, in his own person. Right. Because counselors are supposed to be psychic or something, I think. I don't know. So he's looking at me like that. And I'm just kind of shrugging, like, like, tell me, you know, what's going on? He said, you don't understand. He said, I've had constant pins and needles feeling for the last eight years. He said, he, he said, it's gone. It's gone. And then a couple of weeks later, he emailed me to tell me it was still gone. A couple of years later, he emailed me to tell me it was still gone. He was just still amazed about that. But what, what I took away from that, my rudimentary understanding or uh, ability to articulate biological things, since I'm not a doc, but is it, it it's like the brain was able to experience that event like it was in the past. And so the rest of his body got the memo. Mm. You know what I mean? Right. But, but you could address like just the body, but it's kind of like, you know, if the brain's like more like the motherboard, you know, if the computer, mm -hmm. so you have to go into that and, in a, and take care of things there so the rest of the computations like like flow from that and make sense and that kind of thing so yeah, yeah. it's really amazing because we can say traumas a you know i it, it is very biological and that's why we go through explaining what happens in the brain and how things become encoded and yet i think until you really hear those physical changes we can be inclined to think well you know, that emotions are kind of like iCloud or something, you know, it's like out there somewhere and maybe I should just be over this by now or, 
maybe I'm being wimpy or, you know, need a tough, you know, thicker skin and these things wouldn't bother me, but it's really not the way it works. Yeah. And I love how the healing tools that you teach and the tactics you teach always focus on getting to the root and not just treating the symptoms. And like we've talked about, you know, multiple times at different points in this conversation, it really is not enough to treat the the symptoms, the, the anxiety, the depression. Like, yes, there, we need to manage symptoms. Like that's a very real thing. Um, but so often if you take care of the root trauma, um, the symptoms will take care of themselves. And so yeah, I think that's sure. so, so beautiful. So yeah, any final thoughts on that? And then we'll uh, close out the show. I'm excited to announce uh, what we have here. Yeah. Well, you know, the reason for that is because I'm a big baby when it comes to suffering. And so <laughs> for me, like, like good enough, isn't good enough. Like I really, you know, I am really opposed to suffering if it doesn't need to, ha- you know, happen now, you know, of course God can bring good out of it, thankfully, but, but yeah, but there's so much more that's available to people as far as freedom and, and peace and not just surviving, but really becoming able to thrive. Hundred percent, and that's why I'm so excited to offer more of these tools and tactics that lay people like myself can use to to heal our brokenness, to to grow, to become more virtuous, a better, stronger, more whole person. And so, so excited to partner with you on this course. Uh, your course is titled "Broken to Whole: Tactics to Heal from Your Parents' Divorce or Broken Marriage." It's a free course, everyone. Free. It's zero dollars. Um, there's uh, 30 videos in the course, it's a little under uh, two hours that teach you what trauma is, how it affects you, and some things you can do uh, to heal from. And I'll tell you how to get the course uh, at the very end of this episode. But uh, I'm curious, Margaret, uh, just, yeah, what would you say are some of the benefits of going through this course of learning uh, some of the things that you teach in the course? Yeah, well, you know, I, I think for sure, like, hearing more about how these things work and how they impact us can really foster compassion for ourselves and for other people. And and self-compassion is absolutely 100% across the board. The biggest game changer I see with people in therapy, when when we begin to have compassion for ourselves, everything changes. Everything gets easier just even in terms of our own our own thoughts, how we relate to ourselves, and then what flows from that is how we relate to others. But of course, understanding that I'm not the only traumatized person in the world. A lot of you know other people. I think the majority of other people have been through something that was traumatizing. So then, learning how to navigate things in a peaceful way, I even give a little tool in there for how to process, like. There's difficult, painful experiences that that somebody's gone through. Uh, from for a, from a parent's perspective, learning how to parent from a greater place of understanding is certainly going to equip you to to have more patience, to have more understanding, and more compassion for yourself, um, certainly, but also for for your child. And so, hmm. the symptoms become less confounding and less frustrating. And I think, um, you know, as a parent, I think it's very natural for parents when when a, a child's dysregulated would be the word we would use, super upset. We're not able to calm them down or manage that. Uh, a lot of times parents can feel like a failure in that and it can help you understand how that's not true, but give you some tools to use so that you can be more effective in those situations. That's just a to name a few things. Yeah, no, I love it. And thanks for going through all that. And I think too, if you use, you know, these tools and kind of, you know, are on this path of healing and and we're not saying this is like a cure-all obviously in the course, but it's, there's some really useful things and some really practical tactics. And that's always what we try to do is provide you guys with like really practical resources that you can use today and you can take the advice and put it into action in your life. So you can, you know, have better relationships um, be able to have stable, healthy relationships, not these dysfunctional kind of chaotic relationships that maybe uh, you're used to. You can overcome bad habits and not just overcome bad habits, but build good habits into your life, build virtue. Um, you can learn to you know manage and hopefully even overcome emotional problems, whether that's anxiety, depression, loneliness, anger, things like that. Again, we're not saying that this is replacing like the help of a competent therapist. Um, sometimes that is necessary, but there's a lot you can do on your own. And we're trying to arm you guys 
with these tools to help you heal, to help you grow into um, the person that you really deserve to be. And so, um, like you said, Margaret, I think there's so much power though in understanding just how trauma works. Just if you start there and even stay there and don't go beyond it, naming how you've been harmed, one therapist said, is about 70% of healing. And so, yeah, if you can... Sure. If you can get to that and kind of rediscover your identity too, because so often we act out of a place of maybe who we believe we are, which is maybe a very broken view of ourselves. And so unless we kind of fix that fix that identity piece, we're going to keep acting that way and it's going to keep wreaking havoc on our lives. And then I think one of the biggest things, and I don't know if this is very precise in language, but I, I knew like the feeling of having gone through trauma in my own life, it just kind of leaves me feeling stuck. Sure. And that stuck yeah. feeling, I think, can just hold you back. Like in all the areas I mentioned, like your relationships, your career, even managing your money, like your physical health, things like that. It could obviously lead you to feel super alone and just like you're not just living to the potential that you're capable of. And so when you heal, when you begin on this journey of you know becoming more whole, um, you can begin to get unstuck and then pursue reaching that potential, which I think is amazing. But uh, but just focusing on, I think what our audience cares about the most is really breaking that cycle of dysfunction, of divorce that we come from, just not repeating that in our own lives. Because as you touch on in the course, there's such a danger that if we don't heal, we're going to just repeat that cycle in our own lives, pass it on to our children, and then they're going to you know repeat that too. And so we can stop that, we can change that, which is so hopeful and beautiful. We can build the, the life, we can build the relationships that we want, we can truly thrive in life. So any final things to add in terms of the benefits, Margaret? Yeah. And you know, it's so often working with people who've come from broken home situations, there can be a fear about relationships, particularly romantic relationships and getting married and, and not wanting to repeat the cycle. And so learning how to relate in a healthy way, but also how to spot people who relate in a healthy way. So you have a little more heads up, you're equipped, you know, kind of x-ray vision into how do you identify a healthy person for, you know, for dating and for marriage and that kind of thing. So it doesn't have to be as fearful as it would be otherwise coming from a broken home. Totally. Thanks for saying that. And guys, again, it's free. So the only thing you're risking here is some of your time, which I guarantee you will not regret. So super excited to roll out this course with you, Margaret. Um, thanks so much for coming on the show again. Always a pleasure. And I want to give you the, the last word, um, any final encouragement or advice for our audience? Yeah. You know, I mean, just from my own experience, if you if you think you've tried everything and you think you're beyond help, like, that was exactly the spot I was in. And I just encourage you that you two can thrive because I, you know, I didn't think that that was possible. And yet 17 years in the other chair, and I can say that the life is good. If you've never really thought about all of this, I have a question for you. How is your parents' divorce or your family dysfunction impacting you today? Like it might be years in the past, or maybe it's really recent, but my question is, how is it impacting you today? And how, more importantly, is it holding you back from the life and the relationships that you long for? And if you find yourself in need of healing, we want to help. As mentioned, you're invited to sign up for our new and free course titled Broken to Whole tactics to heal from your parents' divorce or broken marriage. And by signing up, you're going to learn why the trauma of your parents' divorce or family dysfunction is so damaging. You'll get simple tools and tactics you can use to heal and navigate your emotions. And you'll also get tips to build healthy relationships. It's a two-hour course containing 30 videos. Most of those videos are like two to five minutes long. So it's very practical, very digestible. And by going through the course, You'll be armed to identify the root of your struggles, which you're going to learn is usually trauma. You're going to feel validated and less alone in your struggles, knowing that it's actually pretty common to struggle in the ways that you struggle, given what you've been through. You'll understand and better navigate your emotions. You'll build healthy relationships and a better life. And you'll avoid passing on your brokenness to the people that you love the most. If you want to get the course, just go to restoredministry.com slash broken to whole, or just click on the link in the show notes. On that page, you could sign up for free and then begin watching the videos.
Again, just go to restoredministry.com slash broken to hold or click on the link in the show notes. That wraps up this episode. If you know someone who's struggling from their parents' divorce or broken marriage, share this podcast with them. Always remember, you are not alone. We're here to help you feel whole again and break the cycle of dysfunction and divorce in your own life.